very much. Uh, it's a particular pleasure to be back here at uh, Sangam Talks. Today I'm going to talk about another topic, uh, which um, is about, it's about the India's freedom struggle, but not talking about all the heroes, which is what everybody likes to talk about, but talking a little bit about the collaborators, the collaborators who collaborated with the British to perpetuate their rule. I think we should remember them too. So the topic that I am going to talk about is called Nationalists versus Loyalists. Uh, a brief history of the um, collaborators uh, who al allowed British rule to perpetuate itself for as long as it has, uh, as it did. Now, first of all, it is very important right up front to point out that one shouldn't simply add any and everybody who happen to have any dealings with the British to be collaborators. That would simply dilute away the guilt of those who happen to have done something genuinely collaborative. So be clear, there were obviously during British times, many people, perhaps a very large proportion of the population in fact, who would have had some dealings with the British. They may have been government school teachers or doctors or uh, businessmen uh, and so on and so forth, um, who had some dealings with the Br uh, British uh, colonial government. I think it would be way too harsh to call them collaborators. Uh, uh, because as I mentioned, uh, they had no choice. And in any case, it would we would end up simply diluting away the real genuine collaborators. It is somewhat more complicated when one talks about those people who did, however, directly work with the uh, British in some capacity, say as government officials, uh, particularly government officials and things that uh, did include, you know, directly perpetuating their, for example, uh, police informants. Now, clearly, they were doing something uh, that was uh, collaborative. Um, there were obviously uh, administrators and so on. Uh, and there are many shades of gray here. Um, some of them uh, were uh, doing jobs that may not have been, uh, which may have been harmless enough. But it is true that the British would not have been able to rule India, but for the help of very large numbers of Indians who uh, did work in their service doing things which was clearly directed towards other Indians. Uh, for example, as I said, police informants or jail wardens and so on, who were directly involved. Also involved would be people like, say, Sir Grija uh, Shankar Vajpayee, who was um, an ICS officer, who was our uh, effective ambassador, called then the Agent General of India, of the British government in, uh, of India, uh, to, the, to the US, who in the early 40s, uh, represented, or if you prefer, misrepresented India uh, to British uh, 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 colonial uh, ends uh, in uh, America at a time when the US was particularly keen on supporting the Indian cause. Uh, and so in some ways he became an instrument of the uh, uh, British colonial administration. Uh, one could of course uh, argue, and it is often argued, that many of them uh, was simply following orders. 
Now, that in my view is not a really strong defense. After all, uh, the Nazi officials who ran Auschwitz uh, were also following orders. Uh, so, I do not consider that a, a defense at all. So, I will let you judge uh, what shade of gray many of them fell in. Certainly, in many, many cases, they would fall in a very dark shade of gray. But I'm not even going to talk about them in today's talk. Because there are many others more who will be much more black and white, and as you will see. Am I going to then include in the list of collaborators the political class? Because there was a significant proportion of the political class, which in, again, various shades of grey, did collaborate with the British. Remember always that the, when the Indian National Congress was started in 1885, it was not started as a nationalist movement. It was started as a safety valve by the British themselves. They understood that nationalist feelings were bubbling up. They wanted to create a safety valve. And some of the early leaders of the Indian National Congress were certainly uh, 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 very, very, uh, almost embarrassingly subservient to uh, British cause. I mean, I, they would at best raise some minor issues and that also in almost uh, words that are uh, almost painful to read today. The likes of W.C. Bonerjee, for example. You should go and read some of his speeches. And, and it's only really towards the end of the 19th century and early 20th century, thanks to the uh, coming forward of leaders in, uh, uh, such as uh, uh, Bal Gangadhar Tilak, Bipin um, uh, Chandrapal, and Lala Lajpat Rai, the Lal Bal Pai, Pal Trio, and of course, Aurobindo Ghosh, uh, who basically gave the Congress a much stronger bite. And the story of their tussle in the first decade or two of the 20th century is very often written as the battle between the extremists and the moderates. That tells you a lot about who wrote that history from those terms themselves. Because you get the, 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 ex, the impression that the ex, extremists were an unreasonable bunch of people and the moderates were nice chaps who were being reasonable. But what were the extremists asking for? Well, the Lal Bal Pal trio were basically asking for full freedom, Purna Swaraj. That is what was considered so unreasonable that they were called the extremists. Whereas the moderates were basically at best asking for dominion status, but most of them actually wanted very minor concessions in the early decades. Later on, they became a little more uh, stronger in their words. So if, if it was, had not been the British and their uh, moderate friends who had written the history, perhaps the better wording for this would have been that tussle to have been named as the nationalists versus the loyalists. And indeed, this is the terminology that Aurobindo Ghosh himself used at that point in time. So I'm just pointing out to you that when you read history and you read these terms, do remember that many of these terms represent a certain point of view 
And very often this point of view comes, sadly, from that of the collaborators. But I'm not even going to talk about them, because even here there are shades of grey, even amongst the loyalists. So, I'm going to talk much more about the more black and white characters, because there are so many of them, I'm only going to even stick to talking about the collaborators only of the revolutionary movement, which I happen to know rather well. And I'm researching for a book, uh, which hopefully at some point in time I will get around to finishing. So let me take you back to the year 1897. Tilak is finally beginning to raise the sort of tempo on, on, the, on the political movement side. But a new movement begins to rise, which is that of armed resistance to British rule. And the traditional point of calling that sort of the turning point is usually the assassination of Walter Rand, who was the uh, 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 he was the plague inspector in Pune, who was uh, doing using some of his powers under the uh, 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 Epidemics Control Act to do fairly draconian and unreasonable things. So two brothers called the Sapekar brothers or the Chapekar brothers, I always difference of pronunciation, but Chapekar brothers decided that they were going to kill him. And so on, uh, uh, on Ganesh Kind Road, they walked up to his carriage and they shot him dead. So this is not the story about why they did it and so on. What is interesting is that two of their close relatives who had a hint of what they had done, called the Dravid brothers, were the ones who actually gave the information to the, uh, to the British. And it is based on the Dravid brothers' information that the Chapikar brothers were arrested and they would be later hanged. If you go to Ganeshkin Road today, there is a small shrine by the side of the road across from a mall where there's still a shrine or a memorial to the Chapikar brothers. That is where that event happened. However, there was another brother, a third brother of the Chapikar brothers, who found out about the, what the Dravid brothers had done. And he and a friend then hunted down the Dravid brothers and shot them dead. This is incidentally something that the revolutionaries quite regularly did to those who had informed on them. And I will talk about a few of those incidents. But it set a pattern where you would see collaboration, but let me say that at least the revolutionaries did not take it lying down. And there were many instances where they would hunt down informers. Now, thanks to the incident of the Chapikar brothers, a young boy called Vinayak Savarkar was very inspired and he swore at his family, to his family deity, Bhavani, that he would stand up and, pick, uh, and take, take up armed revolt against the British. And after many adventures, this young boy, uh, then a young man, ended up um, in 1907 in India House in London, which was a hostel for students studying there. And he began to create a network across Europe, not just in London, but also in mainland, particularly in Paris, a network of uh, revolutionaries um, to take on the British. And he began to, in many ways, radicalize the young students uh, at that time who were studying there. Among them, the likes of VVS Ayer, Hardeyal, Lala Hardeyal, and, um, uh, and uh, of course, famously, Madhanlal Dhingra and so on. Now, even here, 
there were collaborators. Scotland Yard and uh, the, uh, uh, the, the advisor to the uh, Secretary uh, uh, of State for India, um, they basically managed to infiltrate uh, uh, India House. And they began to put all these uh, uh, intelligence officers to look at what's, uh, the, what is, was going on in India House. So there was always a couple of people hanging about quite clearly in uh, police, uh, uh, plain clothes policemen standing around outside uh, India House smoking cigarettes. And of course, those inside India House very quickly caught on to the fact that they were being watched. So of course, like young, all young men, young students, they decided to have a lot of fun with them. They would randomly take them for walks around uh, London with no particular purpose and then give them a slip. And um, there are uh, beautiful stories how they would just wander around in circles and circles and circles around India House till those who were following them just got frustrated. At other times, they would simply walk up to them and ask for a um, uh, light their cigarette and try and strike up a conversation. So the Scotland Yard re realized that this was pointless keeping a watch from them from outside because obviously these kids knew what was going on. So they finally managed to get somebody inside um, uh, India House in the form of a uh, Maharashtrian student called Kritkar. Now, we don't know if it was his actual name and we don't even know his first name, but his name was Kritkar. And because he spoke Marathi, he very quickly struck up a friendship with Savarkar. And he was there evidently to study dentistry. However, both Savarkar and his key lieutenant VVS Iyer, after a while, began to get a little suspicious of this guy for a variety of reasons. First of all, he hardly ever went to school class. And they found out through somebody that he was he that nobody in his dentistry class knew who he was so clearly there was something already quite fishy about the whole thing <clears throat> then kiritkar began to have an affair with the english maid who was working in their india house and they began to have a very open and rollicking affair and the maid would spend large amounts of time in his room and so on so they were anyway thinking there was something very odd and he was clearly spending a lot of money so anyway they managed to get rid of the maid who Kiritkar then set, set up in a house not far away from India House and he continued to visit her. So they, the students were already suspicious of how does he have so much money to do all of this thing. So one day VBS Iyer opened his door with a master key that they happened to have and they went in and they discovered that he was sending uh, a half-finished report that he was sending to uh, the British uh, intelligence and Scotland Yard. So by this time, they had some guns inside uh, in uh, India House and VVS Iyer hid in his room. So when Kiritkar came back, he put a gun to his head and he confessed everything. So now the students made Kiritkar sit down and they decided what will they do with him. And of course, threatened that they're going to kill him, etc. But Savarkar decided he shall have some fun. So what they did is they decided to, uh, they told him that he could continue living there but except that they would dictate his weekly reports. So what they would do is that after dinner, the whole hostel would sit around the dinner table and write all kinds of bizarre things into the report and send the report. 
Now, we don't know for sure whether Scotland Yard, after a while, discovered what was going on. But nevertheless, it's, it's, it's fun to think about these young students in London in, in the year 1910, sitting around the table and thinking of it, outrageous things to write in this report. Of course, this did not last for too long. A couple of years later, Madan Lal Dhingra would go on to assassinate the intelligence officer. Uh, and, uh, of course, um, uh, Savarkar would ultimately be arrested. He would be sent off to Kalapani and so on. And I'm not going to quit in that story because that's a different story. Meanwhile, back in India, the revolutionary movement was bubbling up. Um, and by, by around about 1910, the key leader of this movement was a gentleman called Rash Bihari Bose. He was originally from Bengal, but he was working out of the Forestry Research Institute in uh, Dehradun. This is not the one that you see when you go today, because that one opened only in 1922. There's a smaller uh, uh, setup uh, near Tibbat Bazaar. There's still some red-colored build, brick buildings which were there where Raj Bihari Bose used to work as a lab assistant. And he planned in 1912 to carry out a major assassination attempt on the Viceroy Hardinge in Chandni Chok. And uh, if you go to Chandni Chok, you will see where this attempt happened. It's uh, in a play, uh, out on a wholesale market called Katra Dhulia, which still exists. It has a green door. Uh, it's across, by the way, from the Parathe Valley Gali. And the place where the bomb, so there, there was a place that they identified where they were going to throw the bomb. They, <clears throat> so they got, he went and got a young uh, boy called Basanta Biswas from Bengal. Now, Basanta Biswas came from a small village near Krishnanagar in Bengal, in Nadia district. And he was brought, he was given a lot of training. And then in December 23rd, 1912, when the formal inauguration of Delhi as the national capital was shifted from, uh, the announcement had happened in 1911, but the formal transfer happened in 1912. And there was a big procession that went through Chandni Chowk in front of Katra Dhulia. Basanta Biswas dressed as a woman and uh, uh, Raj Bihari, a little behind in, in one floor up, watching the whole proceedings, they managed to throw a bomb on uh, the elephant and on uh, Viceroy Hardinge, and it exploded. It killed his attendant, and it very badly hurt um, uh, uh, the Viceroy, so much so that he was hospitalized for some six months. He didn't die, but he was very badly hurt, and became a, naturally became a major outrage. But in the confusion after the bombing, there was so much chaos and running around. Basanta Biswas was dressed as a woman, as I said. He took off his sari, and both of them went to what is now Purani Delhi station, and they took the train. Basanta Biswas went off to Lahore, and uh, Rash Bihari went off to Dehradun, where he interestingly did a big a meeting and uh, strongly condemned the dastardly act of attacking the Viceroy. Now, Basanta Biswas then stayed in Lahore for some time. And he carried out one more attack, which didn't work out. But nevertheless, he, he stayed there. But of course, people were suspicious, had heard his name. They knew that they had something perhaps to do with him, but they didn't know where to find him. And of course, in those days, it was much more difficult to, to, find, uh, to identify somebody. Sadly, what happened is that Basanta Biswas's father died a year later. And he decided he wanted to go back home to this village uh, outside Krishnanagar. 
and uh, Raj Bihari repeatedly told him not to do so. But he said, my father's died, I have to carry out his last rites. So he went back home. He said, only people who will know that I'm back are from my family. And so don't worry, I'll just do this and I'll get out of there as soon as possible. So he lands up in his village. And guess what? His own uncle identified him. And that is how Basanta Biswas was captured. Not only was he hanged, and he was 17 years old then, incidentally. He, many of his team here in Delhi, that included Amir Chand, Master Amir Chand, there was uh, Bhai Balmukund, uh, there was Avad Bihari, uh, all of them were hanged after this. But one of the saddest parts of this story is that not only were these punished, but also, of course, their family was, which had been Jamindars, were then very rapidly reduced to extreme penury. But the family of the uncle became very rich and powerful and politically very powerful in that area because obviously the British uh, supported their cause and uh, supported them in many ways. And to this day, the uncle's family continues to be the most powerful political family of that area to this day. Now, after this incident happened, however, meanwhile, there was a lot of buzz going on about the revolutionary not just in India, but also in the Indian diaspora all over the world, particularly amongst the Punjabis Sikhs who in North America, along the west coast of North America, which is in California and in British Columbia, in and around Vancouver. And one of uh, uh, the disciples of Savarkar had ended up in San Francisco and he began to now organize them using a newsletter called the Gadar. Gadar literally means the revolution. And this was being spread through the network of Gurudwaras all along the east, uh, west coast of um, North America. And very quickly, they connected through to uh, Sikh communities in Hong Kong, in Singapore, in, uh, in Malaya, and uh, even very, reaching back to Punjab. So there was a huge amount of radicalization that began to happen. Now, the British were entirely aware of this radicalization happening uh, circa 1912, 1914. And so they began to begin to infiltrate the Gurudwaras to try and stop this happening. And they put a uh, police officer who had grown up in India, a British uh, uh, police officer who had grown up in India, born and grown up in India, and had gone to Canada. His name was Hopkinson. And Hopkinson then job was, he was given a significant amount of money to essentially find uh, uh, loyalist Sikhs and infiltrate all the Gurudwaras. So he began to do this very, very systematically and he was given a huge amount of resources to do this. So basically what they were trying to do was one, diminish all this nationalist feeling that the Gadarites were fanning and very systematically separate out the Sikhs from the Hindus. This was a very important thing they wanted to do because uh, that was one clear way in which to divide the uh, Hindu Sikh community of North America. Now, not surprisingly, the Gurudwara, there were many people in the Gurudwaras who figured that this was going on. So very quickly, the, community, the Sikh community in North America became completely divided. And the majority were with the Gadarites, but there was this strong and well-fed community of, of British collaborators. And we have their names, and I, it's important to name them. There was a gentleman called Bela Singh, and there was another one called Arjan Singh. 
they were the two key collaborators, but there were many others as well. Now, the Gatherites knew this, and in the years 1913-14, they began to systematically kill these collaborators. So in one such incident, Harnam Singh, uh, sorry, um, Harnam Singh and Arjun Singh, two of them, were shot dead uh, in the very, very mysterious circumstances. Now you can imagine that the collaborationist group became panicked by this situation. And Bela Singh, who was one of Hopkinson's key uh, sort of uh, informants, he panicked so much that he went into a guru, guru, the main Gurudwara in Vancouver with a revolver and those whom he suspected of being, you know, carrying out these killings, he shot them dead. So now you can imagine this caused complete chaos. And so Bela Singh was captured and naturally the British couldn't pretend that nothing had happened because there's so many people had seen this killing. So they put him on a mock trial. It was very, very clear that he was going to be cleared because he would have some cock and bull story was being prepared, which uh, that he had done it in self-defense. So the court hearing started and it was very clear to all parties that he was going to get uh, absolved of all things, despite the fact that, uh, you know, dozens of people had seen him kill these two people in, in, in a Gurudwara. Now, on the last day, a key, uh, 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 when the, uh, uh, you know, when the last day of the trial was going on, the Hopkinson was supposed to come and give his testimony. When he was standing outside, just about to enter the courtroom to give his testimony, uh, one of the Gatherites, uh, God bless his soul, uh, called Mewa Singh, pulled out a revolver and shot him dead. And then he surrendered. And Mewa Singh was then put on trial and then hanged. Not Almost nobody today in India remembers Mewa Singh. But on, at that point in time, the atmosphere in the Sikh community uh, in, in North America was such that 400 Gadarite Sikhs turned up outside the jail when he was hung. And to this day, in theory at least, there are still nationalist Sikhs there who celebrate his death uh, anniversary. But almost nobody else other than this small group in North America, and certainly not in India, have ever heard of Neva Singh. Please read up about him. What an amazing guy. And what happened to Bela Singh? Well, Bela Singh obviously got absolved because that was the plan. So the British authorities uh, in Canada uh, absolved him. He became free, but that did not save him. There were at least two or three more attempts to kill him from the other rights. So much so that he finally decided that it was safer for him to be in Punjab. So he came back actually to his ancestral village in Punjab, where he was hunted down and shot dead. Now, meanwhile, the First World War was gathering pace. And the British needed soldiers. So they began to uh, get hold of, uh, you know, uh, asking, uh, uh, drive to get Indian soldiers to work and uh, to work for them. And yes, in the initial bits, there were indeed a some enthusiasm amongst those from particularly warrior classes who wanted to sort of join in the endeavor. So in the very initial phase, there were volunteers to actually fight this war. But in 
after a few months, it became quite clear that this was not going to end long and you are getting literally, when the dead bodies began to come back, the enthusiasm quickly filtered away. At this juncture, the British government took a much more uh, uh, strong view of how to gather uh, uh, recruits. Uh, they managed to, of course, get a whole bunch of people who were in favor of them, which include, by the way, the chief of the Golden Temple, who was the, it was then called the Chief Khalsa Diwan, a gentleman called Arur, who <coughs> um, managed to gather uh, uh, a lot of uh, uh, more enthusiastic, uh, some more enthusiastic. By the way, uh, Mahatma Gandhi at this juncture has just returned to India, went around villages in a, a bullock cart trying to uh, recruit Indians to fight in the war um, as well. Anyway, but even all these exhortations did not manage to get enough people because as the body count went up, uh, volunteers were very thin on the ground. So at this juncture, the British got hold of a bunch of, of contractors. And these contractors were given the job of essentially going out in slaving raids to villages. And they did this, this particularly well documented for Punjab, but they did it in other places as well, I'm sure. So they would go into a village, surround it, and particularly from the poorer segments, they would, they would capture, you know, families who are laborers or whatever, whoever was an able-bodied young man, they would simply drag these guys and take them off and put them in the army. And many of these contractors became very, very rich as a result of this. Um, uh, and so, the uh, later, the, from that point in time, much of the Punjabi elite were these contractors and to this day their descendants are the Punjabi elite of even today are the contractors for this, uh, for this uh, effort, effort. Now, there are very horrific stories about what has happened and many of those, those whose names are carved on the India, uh, India Gate uh, are, who, are the, who died in the First World War fighting for the British, do remember that they were not volunteers, as they are sometimes portrayed to be. They were essentially village kids who had been dragged off by these contractors for a fee and forced to fight in this war out in somewhere in Europe, in the trenches or in Gallipoli and so on. They were, um, and there were Indians, uh, contractors who made a large amount of money by essentially per person, they, it's almost like a slave, uh, uh, selling a slave, you captured like slaving trade, captured these guys and sold them to the British to die in Europe. That is basically what was going on and some became very, very rich. Now, of course, the revolutionaries knew that there was a lot of murmuring of unhappiness amongst the uh, Indian troops. So they were trying to instigate a revolt in the Indian army. And Raj Bihari Bose, who had still not been captured, and his assistant and lieutenant Sachindranath Sanyal, they began to now collaborate with the Gadarites and they began to now infiltrate many of these uh, battal Indian battalions and regiments to try and instigate a uh, mass revolt. And they decided that they were going to, there was going to be a mass revolt in the Indian army, not uh, sort of inspired by 1857. And this would start in the northwest of India and roll its way across India till it fed through to all the uh, Indian regiments, even those who had been posted abroad. 
And this was supposed to happen on the 21st of February 1915. And all it was all set up already, large numbers of uh, in, in Indian uh, soldiers had been primed. Uh, Raj Bihari himself had moved and uh, gone to Lahore. Uh, there was a gentleman called uh, uh, Pingle who was in Meerut. And uh, Kartar Singh Saraba, young 18-year-old who had, was a Gadarite, had come back. He was put in Ludhiana and so on. So they were all primed. When Raj Bihari noticed that there was this fellow called Kirpal Singh, who was seen suspiciously on Lahore railway station talking to somebody who was who he knew was an intelligence officer. So he immediately knew that things were going to go wrong. And what he did is he then tried to push the uh, revolt forward a few days from 21st. But this too got information got through to uh, Kirpal Singh and he conveyed this to the British. What the British did immediately was changed all the Indian guards at the armory with European ones. So immediately the Indian soldiers had no uh, uh, access to guns as long as they were in India. When they went, uh, went outside, it's a different matter. And this revolt on that day collapsed. The only place where this revolt actually happened is where this information hadn't reached, which was in Singapore. And for about a week, a Muslim regiment in Singapore held Singapore for a full week till it was put down uh, ultimately by uh, uh, the, the British uh, with, interestingly at that time, collaboration of the Japanese. Anyway, so again, you can see uh, clear collaboration leading to a collapse in this uh, 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 happening. Now, many of these characters were shipped off by the British. Uh, many, of course, were hanged. But those who survived uh, from many of these episodes were shipped off to Kalapani, as you many know. Now, one of the interesting things that happened in Kalapani is that, of course, there were a few senior officials who were British. But it is important to remember that the cellular jail in Kalapani on a day-to-day -day basis was largely run by Indians. They were the jail wardens. And it is the jail wardens who, in fact, carried out most of the cruelty. So it is very important to remember, and many of their names are still known. So I want you, would like you to read many of the books, in, for example, the book of uh, um, Aurobindo Ghosh's brother, Barin Ghosh, has written a very nice book where he mentions some of their names, read them. And of course, specifically what they do, many of the revolutionaries tended to be Hindu, so they would put Muslim guards on them and try and cause uh, all kinds of dissension. But anyway, it is important, again, as I said, their names need to be remembered. Because if you do not remember the collaborators and only remember the heroes, then you'll never get the full picture. It's important to remember the collaborators. The First World War ended in 1918. In 1919, all the soldiers began coming back. Now, remember, these soldiers had fought in the trenches. They had, they had already unhappy when they were recruited. They had been then radicalized by Raj Bihari Bose and the Gadarites. And now they had lost their fear of killing white men, having fought in the First World War. And they were coming back and the British were extremely scared that these guys were going to now carry out that revolt that they had planned in 1914, uh, 1915. So this is the context in which the Rowlett Acts 
were put in place. Please do remember the Raul attacks didn't happen in thin air. It had everything to do with the Gadarites and the revolutionaries infiltrating into the Indian army. And so, of course, uh, the Jallianwala Bagh massacre happened as a result of protests against this Raul attack. And as a result of that, many revolutionaries were then left, uh, uh, released from jail. Many of them came back. Some like Sachin Sanyal went back straight back to organizing the next generation of uh, revolutionaries. He set up the Hindustan Republican Army. Uh, and then he recruited the next generation and also the next, the following generation of revolutionaries like Bismil and Rajendra Lahiri and Bhagat Singh, Chandrasekhar Azad and so on. But I do want to point out that throughout this period, there were continuously moles inside the Hindustan Republican Association and the Hindustan, under the Hindustan Republican Army. And later on when the northern Indian uh, section of it was renamed as the Hindustan Socialist Republican uh, Army as well. So there were continuously moles in the HRA and later in the HSRA. And it is interesting to note who these characters were. So I'm going to just give you the example of one, but there were many, many others. As you may know that by 1930-31, uh, there was an upsurge of uh, revolutionary activity in northern India. There was, of course, the uh, Bhagat Singh and Chandrasekhar Azad killed Saunders in retaliation for uh, the beating to death of Lala Lajpat Rai. There was a throwing of the bomb in the Central Legislative Assembly in Delhi, which is now the parliament. And, of course, Bhagat Singh and, and, and Rajguru and, uh, and uh, Sukhdev were hanged and so on. Their other colleague was Chandrasekhar Azad. Chandrasekhar Azad had not been captured. He made his way to, uh, through Jhansi and other places eventually to uh, what was then called Allahabad, now called Prayagraj. And he was then famously, as you may know the story, he was trapped in uh, Alfred Park in uh, Allahabad. And then he fought till the last bullet and then he shot himself and killed himself with the last bullet. Now the question is, how did the British know that he was in um, Alfred Park. That very often the story is that there was a gentleman called Veerbhadra Tiwari who provided the information. But there is a problem with this story because although Veerbhadra probably did work for the British and provide them information, he didn't actually know where uh, Chandrasekhar Azad was because Chandrasekhar Azad had not kept him in the loop. So how did the British get information? Because it doesn't quite add up. So we actually do have some other information of how this person was. The other person and very likely source of this information was a person that you may know as the very famous writer called Yashpal. You know the writer called Yashpal? He made a name for himself in independent India as a writer, particularly about the uh, about this um, about the um, revolutionary movement. But do you know that he was actually uh, the most likely source of the information. So much so, in fact, even before Chandrasekhar Azad died, he already suspected that he had, there was something fishy about him. And he had instructed several members of his uh, group to actually look out for him and kill him if necessary. But we know also for a fact that Yashpal knew 
that Chandrasekhar Azad was in Allahabad because they had actually together gone and seen Jawaharlal Nehru the previous day. But the best information about this actually interestingly comes from many decades later. Somewhere in the 1960s, a CID officer called Dharmendra Gaur, who was in the Lucknow office of CID, came across a bunch of letters from the 19, late 1940s, or rather 1940s, from just the period when the British were handing about to hand over to the Indians. This is, I think, from 1946, if I'm not mistaken. And this letter is very interesting because it is one British uh, uh, intelligence officer telling another that uh, we are now going to leave uh, this country. We need to make arrangements for uh, one of our useful informants, a gentleman, uh, somebody called Mr. Yashpal. And he describes the person who is quite clearly the writer. And he says he was very useful to us in certain cases. And then he names all the dates where he was useful, which clearly correlate to uh, Yashpal's, uh, uh, particularly the particular incident of uh, Azad being killed. So, so as I said, pointed out to you, uh, the Dharmendra God then, of course, made a bit, wrote a book about this. And most interestingly, Yashpal, who was still alive at that time and a very famous author and so on, and intellectual of that time, uh, while he uh, did not entirely, uh, what should I say, uh, refute the facts. So, uh, again, do remember sometimes who these people are. It is very important to remember this. Now, the 1930s, of course, uh, saw uh, a brief lull in the mid-30s. The Indians, both the peaceful movement and the revolutionary movement by the mid-30s were exhausted. They had tried over the last previous decades, there are many moves, whether the non-cooperation movement on one hand or the various uh, revolutionary activities on the other, they had simply failed to, to budge the British. And so, they were exhausted. And then only in the very late 30s did they begin to again gather momentum. Um, Raj Bihari Bose was then based in Japan, and of course the Japanese entered the war, and so on. But one of the interesting things that happened during this period is what the British were doing in order to infiltrate the revolutionary movement, because they were still afraid that this movement may come back. And they did something that is quite curious and not much talked about, which is that they actually used Marxism to do this. It's very, very curious. But if you read the writings of the younger revolutionaries of the 30s, many of them went to jail as nationalists and came back as communists. And if you read their memoirs, you will see, and many of them say with some surprise, that why is it that the we were provided with all this Marxist literature in jail. And I, I have lots of evidence of this. Um, and they would be provided huge amounts of Marxist literature. Now, we can debate why is it that you would be providing some uh, dangerous ideology. One would consider that, you know, the, even the British considered Marxist ideology to be somewhat dangerous. But it is possible that they thought that this was a good way to split them. And it is certainly true that by the mid-30s, the Russians who had originally tried to set up the Communist Party of India and Tashkent, MN Roy and so on, they had actually lost control of the CPI. So who controlled the Communist Party of India in India? Well, it turned out that it was the British communists. 
a gentleman called Rajni Palmedat, who is almost certainly a double agent. And this control of the communist movement by the British uh, communists came in very useful during the Second World War because <clears throat> the communists completely sided with the British during this period, citing the fact that the Soviet Union was fighting on the side of the Allies and therefore they, have, they were honor bound to side with the Allies. So, not surprisingly, the communists called Netaji the following, I have written a few interesting ones down for you. The running dog of Tojo, Tojo was the leader of the Japanese, donkey carrying Tojo, midget led by Japanese imperialists, mask of Jap Japanese imperialist ogre. These are names by the Communist Party of India for Netaji Subhash Chandra Bose. So it is not very surprising, therefore, that the memory of Subhash Chandra Bose in Bengal was very quietly subsumed during the 35 years of communist rule. If you're wondering why, you know, Netaji is not more, not more celebrated in Bengal the way he would think he would be, the reason is that his very existence was an embarrassment to the people who were the dominant political ideology of that part of the country. Now, I've spoken for a fairly long time but I do hope that you have got a flavor of the, of the many people who work tirelessly to keep the British ruling India. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. First question I would like to ask Sanjeevji. The Richard Hardinge that you mentioned is a... Viceroy Hardinge. Is he the same person who was called the butcher of Lal Bazaar and in whose case Aurobindo Ghosh was imprisoned? So, Viceroy Hardinge was, uh, well, I, I, the, 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 he was certainly the Hardinge. I don't know whether he was given that butcher of I'm not certain that that is... The because you spoke about Delhi and he was like, there was an attempt on his life where the Khudiram Bose and all were... No, no, so Khudiram Bose all happened at the same time. So it's quite possible at that time Hardinge was also the Viceroy. But I'm not sure whether he was, that uh, Butcher yeah. of Lal Bazaar was ever used for Viceroy Hardinge. That I don't think is Richard the case. Hardinge was I don't it. think, you can Google it up, I, I don't know. There may have been another Hardinge. Hmm. All right, because yes, this at the same time and the same name. And so it is possible. I, I I don't they, know. I don't know it off the top of my head. At his carriage, but they failed. Uh, it was yeah, yeah, there were many, like, no. The Khudiram Bose uh, bombed somebody else. That That is not the same person who became Viceroy. Right. That is not right. the case. Take Kingsford the is the right name. Yes, it is not, not Hardinge. Don't confuse them. So my question is about the legacy of Bhagat Singh. So what we see is that all the, you know, the Marxist parties and the leftist parties keep appropriating Bhagat Singh. And uh, recently with the Punjab election, we are seeing that uh, the party which has won is actually promoting Bhagat Singh in Delhi's government schools also and in Punjab also. And uh, unfortunately, he's been ruling Delhi, now he's got Punjab. <laughs> so my question is, how do you see uh, Bhagat Singh, uh, as in was he a communist before he went into jail? So or let became... me say that uh, Bhagat Singh was indeed towards the end of his life a, a communist. That is, no, and that is true. Uh, but there is a problem with appropriating him into saying that he was the source of the communist movement. He's not. 
because he was a member of the uh, of a revolutionary movement which was quite explicitly not Marxist. In fact, the HRA, his guru, in a sense, who started as a gentleman called Sachindranath Sanyal. Sachindranath Sanyal was distinctly not a communist. In his book, Bandi Jeevan, he go, spends a significant amount of his, of his time mentioning why he disliked Marxism. So the movement that Bhagat Singh belonged to, the revolutionary movement, the Anishalan Samiti, the HRA, even the HSRA, then even after the name change, were explicitly not Marxist movements. And Bhagat Singh himself says so. So if you read why I am an atheist, the whole point about why I am an atheist is that he is the atheist and nobody else is. So you read it and he mentions long lists of people, ki none of these people are atheists. They're all my colleagues, I respect them, I love them, they're clearly Deshbhakts and nationalists, etc. That, But I am the one who is the atheist. Am I wrong? And that is what he talks about. So let it be very clear that Bhagat Singh was a patriot. He was indeed towards the end of his life a, um, a Marxist. That is true. But he was not a part of a Marxist movement at all. Secondly, he was not even the source of the Marxist uh, movement because the Marxist movement starts, interestingly, with a gentleman called M.N. Roy. So I, give me a few minutes, I'll tell you a little bit about M.N. Roy. M.N. Roy was originally a part of Bhagajyotin's Jugantur group who got stuck in Indonesia. Then he made his way through North America, Mexico, etc. to the Soviet Union. And in 1920-21, he set up the Communist Party of India in Tashkent, where Lenin gave him the uh, support to set this up. Now, he was stuck in Tashkent. What does he do? So he had two groups of people to uh, set this up with. One of the groups were stranded revolutionaries of Europe who, after Germany's defeat, didn't have anywhere to go. So they had escaped to Soviet Union. So he had one, a small group of them. And he had another group, which was somewhat larger, of uh, jihadis, from, particularly from Kerala, who had, uh, the British were chasing after, uh, because they had been part of the Mopla revolts and had were very keen to fight for the uh, uh, Ottoman Sultan's cause in Turkey. And these guys had made their way into Iran and, uh, and um, Afghanistan, and they were trying to get to Turkey to fight uh, for the Sultan, when, of course, the uh, Turks themselves overthrew um, the Sultan. So they now became stranded. They couldn't go back to Britain, where the British were looking for them, and they couldn't go to Turkey, where Ataturk wouldn't have been very keen on hosting them. So he, those guys also ended up in Tashkent, in the Soviet Union. So here was Emin Roy with a bunch of Bengalis and a bunch of Malayali Muslims. And not surprisingly, both of these places would later become sources of uh, communist uh, activity. But Emin Roy himself would infiltrate, sort of come back to India in, uh, if I'm not wrong, in the very late 1920s, early 30s. I forget the date. And then in the 30s, uh, he would spend some time in jail because he would be arrested. And then when he came out, however, he realized that the Indian communist movement had been basically been captured by foreigners. There was, of course, the Russian influence, and I mentioned separately the British influence. And of course, he was also disillusioned by the ideology as well to some extent. And he would drift off from communism to create, go into uh, uh, something he would call radical humanism. And so there was a royist, royist communist group 
or whatever, who separated itself off from the Communist Party of India. So the Communist Party of India does not like to celebrate its true founder, mm. M.N. Roy, because he is an embarrassment. So they have gone and dug around and found Bhagat Singh, who was a Marxist, but had nothing to do with their movement. Yeah. So actually, if you read the Indian newspapers in India right now, you will see that you the revolution has happened and everything is going to be fine. And like yeah, but uh, you know, Bhagat, they may have found Bhagat Singh is a much more complex character. He was an Arya Samaji Sikh, as it happens to be as well. Yes. Also, sir, Nidish Goyal. Sadar Bhagat Singh and Chandrasekhar Azad are both great for us. But you think that Chandrasekhar Azad didn't get that glory like Sadar Bhagat Singh? Uh, but uh, even uh, he was the key of each and every plan, even... Uh... So, so, let me say, first of all, this is not a competition between revolutionaries mm -hmm. about who was the greater revolutionary. They were all very closely working together. There were several generations of them. The first generation of Aurobindo and, and Savarkar. The second generation, which was included the likes of Sachin Sanyal, Rajbihari Bose, Hardeyal. The third generation, which uh, included, again, Sachin Sanyal, but also Bismil. Uh, Rajin Lahiri and so on. A fourth generation which included Rajguru and uh, uh, Bhagat Singh and uh, uh, Azad, Chandrasekhar Azad. And of course, the final uh, generation which the predominant, the most prominent leader was Netaji. So this is a long series of uh, revolutionary leaders uh, to try and uh, create a contest amongst who was the greater of, greatest of them is uh, is an insult to their memory, frankly. Hello, uh, myself, Raviranjan Singh. Uh, one thing I'll like to uh, bring to the notice that is at the fact end of his life, Bhagat Singh was a Kesadhari again. That's that's what I like to. So, which would you say was the last generation of Indian resistors? There will be no last resistors till the end of time. We will resist and resist and resist. <laughs> I would also like you to trace the roots of the present-day Khalistan movement, present-day Sikhs. Where does it go? So, the it is there is it is a very well documented fact that the British were very afraid that there would be a repeat of the eighteen fifty seven revolt. So they invested very heavily in many parts of India, not just in Punjab, but in many parts of India, in trying to create various kinds of divisions. And those divisions came in many ways, between uh, within the Hindu-Sikh community, between obviously the, the, the Hindus and the Muslims, uh, within castes, uh, and so on. I gave the, uh, I talked a little bit about the idea of that, how they invested very heavily after the Gadarite movement um, in trying to wean uh, away the um, Sikh community, A, from the Hindus, but also from the nationalist movement. Uh, and the strongest impact of that happened uh, partly in Britain, but also in North America. So if you are sometimes very surprised, why on earth would Canada be the place where the Khalistani movement is so strong? Well, it was all started with a gentleman called Hopkinson, um, which a Gatherite Sikh shot dead, whom a Gatherite Sikh shot dead. But is that, that thing that he started obviously had a lot of state support and would continue to have over many decades 
uh, even after that event. So not surprisingly, that is now reasonably embedded. Somebody will have to apply their mind to try and wean it out. But this is not the only one. I'll give you another one. In the other place where they had, this was in Bengal, where um, they were very afraid of the revolutionaries. The third place where they were very afraid of this is Maharashtra. And Maharashtra, I'll give you another example before I end. Maharashtra, is an ex there, uh, the, they were very afraid, particularly of the Mah Marathis, because remember, the British conquered India from the Marathas, not from the Mughals. And they were always afraid that the Marathas would somehow get sparked, because quite a few Maratha rulers also had survived. So it was a matter of time that they thought that something like 1857 would happen. And this time, the Gaikwads and the Shindes and the others wouldn't side with the British, and it would all end badly. And so characters like Tilak and so on were very were seen with some degree of fear. And of course, there was a lot of bubbling uh, of uh, anti-British feelings in Maharashtra. Now, not surprisingly, perhaps, the key leaders of many of these were the Maharashtrian Brahmins, who had been the uh, ruling class of the Peshwas, particularly in the Pune-Nasik uh, area. So, one of the ways in which the British incited uh, uh, sort of divisions was systematically invest in anti-Brahminism in Maharashtra. Now, this shows through even to this day, but there was a particular incident which probably illustrates this even more clearly, which is the assassination of Gandhi. Of course, it was done by a Maharashtrian Gandhi, uh, Brahmin and was wrong. I've, at no point should anyone defend this. However, what is not told to you is that following that event, there were large-scale riots across India, but particularly Maharashtra, against Maharashtrian Brahmins, in which hundreds, perhaps thousands of them were... Yeah, yeah somebody, there are many estimates, 8,000. Yes, so large numbers, hundreds, perhaps thousands, and there are many estimates here. This is never talked about. This is important because a very similar thing happened to the Sikhs in 1984, after, yes. right? If we had learned this history of what happened in 1948 after, with the Maharashtrian Ramans, we would have heard, we would probably have avoided what happened in 1984. So it is very important. I also want to say something about a specific family. Savarkar was blamed for this. He was, of course, exonerated later on by the Supreme Court of India of having any involvement. Lesser known is that Savarkar's younger brother, Narayan Savarkar, who was, by the way, himself, in his own right, a major freedom fighter, was stoned to death by a mob two or three days after uh, Gandhi assassination. Who was the person who was hanged for his death? Godse was hanged for, it, for Gandhi's killing. Who was hanged for Narayan Savarkar's killing? No one. It was not even investigated. Thank <laughs> you.